You can open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish that chapter. I mentioned uh, our daughter. She said to me this week the pollution index in their city was 750. And I said, uh, how does that relate to here? And she said, on a really bad day, Phoenix is 50 and Flagstaff is 10. And they're 750. So they're just breathing coal dust, basically. And uh, so if you would keep them in prayer, that would be appreciated. But um, not a clean place to live. We're going to finish Colossians 1. There's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages online as well as at the back. You can get one now or later. And there are um, the audio messages. We're putting them up on sermonaudio.com. And you can access them there. And we're working to get many years of backlog of sermons on there as well. Uh, don't know. Do you need help on that project, Jeff? If we're, <laughs> it's just kind of a one-man deal, huh? doing it slowly. Anyway, verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1. Paul says, we proclaim him, him referring to Christ, admonishing every man or every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. In first things first, uh, Stephen Covey and Roger and Rebecca Merrill make a statement that is one of those duh, obvious statements, but Yet as you chew on it, it's maybe a little more profound than it looks on the surface. They say this, The problems in life come when we're sowing one thing and expecting to reap something entirely different. Let me read that again, just so you get it. The problems in life come when we're sowing one thing and expecting to reap something different entirely different. So as we face a new year, it's a good time to ask ourselves the question, well, what kind of crop does God want me to reap? And then in light of that, well, what do I need to sow in order to reap that crop? As believers in Jesus Christ, all of us want to be good stewards of all of the time, the treasure, the talent that God has entrusted to us, and we all want to be fruitful so that when we stand before the Lord someday, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful slave. And so the question we need to ask is, well, if I want to reap a life that's fruitful in light of eternity, then backing up, what do I need to sow today, this month, these 12 months ahead, if I want to reap that kind of life. Now, in our text, Paul shares the purpose for which he worked hard, namely to present every person, as it says in the NASB, complete in Christ. If you have an ESV, that word complete is translated as mature, 
In the NIV and New King James Version, it's translated perfect. Uh, Douglas Moo, a commentator, says that perfect is too strong of a translation. Uh, But he says mature is too relative. Because when we think mature, we tend to compare ourselves with some other Christians we know who aren't quite as mature as we are, and we think, now I'm doing okay. Uh, But elsewhere, Paul does contrast that word with infants or children. And so I'm going to argue that the word mature is a good translation if we keep Dr. Moo's uh, uh, concern in mind. And if we define mature according to the Bible. And so we all need to aim at being mature in Christ as defined by the Bible. And of course, we should be helping others grow to maturity also. Now, how do we do that? Well, Paul's answer is to present every person mature in Christ, proclaim him, and then work hard according to his power. So the goal maturity in Christ, the means to the goal, proclaiming Christ and working hard as we depend on his power. First of all, then, our goal is to present every person mature in Christ. Up in verse 25, we saw that Paul said that he um, might fulfill, or it's translated, fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now he elaborates on how he does that. Verse 28, he says, We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man or person, teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. That word present is used elsewhere of a father presenting his daughter as a bride to her bridegroom. Um, Paul wants to present the church as holy and blameless before the Lord as the bride of Christ someday at his second coming. Now, what does that entail? Well, to present others mature in Christ entails you've got to be growing to maturity in Christ yourself. Um, I had a seminary professor some of you have heard of, uh, maybe heard him speak, Dr. Howard Hendricks. And he was full of these pithy quotes that you couldn't forget. And one of them was, you cannot impart what you do not possess. He, He would drill that home. You cannot impart what you do not possess. In other words, if you're not making a concerted effort to grow in Christ, then you can't Help others do the same. The Lord, though, wants all of his disciples to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go and make disciples of all the nations. It's implicit in Paul's command that he gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, where he says, The things which you have heard from me, In the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul also exhorted the churches where he ministered in 1 Corinthians 11.1, and it occurs in a number of other places. He said, be imitators of me 
uh, just as I also am of Christ. Now, if you're honest, you may be thinking, that's all kind of intimidating, frankly. Uh, It's really kind of uh, intimidating because I don't feel adequate to help others grow in Christ. And honestly, I don't think I'll ever be at the point where I could say to somebody, follow me as I follow Christ. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I think every one of us would be hesitant to say that. But I've, I've got news for you. If you've got kids, you've got followers. And they're following your example. Whether you want them to or not, they follow your example. Good or bad. I remember once, uh, <laughs> moments that you wish you could relive. I was driving with my oldest, who was two years old, in her car seat in the back. Came around a blind curve, and a guy had stopped to look at the view in the lane of traffic. I almost rear-ended him, and I hit the horn along with screeching my tires and instinctively yelled, You jerk! And from the back seat, I heard a little voice say, You jerk! And it was like a knife pierced my heart as I thought, oh no, my anger is being transferred to my little girl. Uh, We are examples to our kids. If you've only been a Christian for a month, you have something to impart to somebody who's not a Christian, namely how Christ saved you. If you've been a Christian for five years, you got five years of experience of walking with the Lord that you can share with somebody newer in the faith. Uh, So wherever you're at, the point is, God can help you help others grow to maturity. You're the channel. You're, You're the example. You're the one to teach them as you are growing to maturity in Christ. But that's assuming something. You're growing to maturity. You're walking with the Lord. So you have vital experience with God that when you come in contact with somebody else, you have something to share with them. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Now, what does maturity in Christ look like? Well, maturity in Christ means developing Christ-like character and Christ-like conduct. Now, to describe Christ-like character and Christ-like conduct, we could start in Genesis and go to Revelation and describe um, all the character traits and all the behaviors that are commanded all through Scripture, the, the character traits that are exemplified in the greatest saints in the Bible, all of that. The supreme example, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he said that the two greatest commandments, if you want to boil them down to two, are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, if you think about it, those are relational commandments. And so you can evaluate your own walk with God by answering the questions, How are my relationship with God and my relationship with others? If I'm doing well in that area, I'm growing in Christ. 
You say, oh, I love God. I mean, I had some music on yesterday and I just felt warm and fuzzy. Well, that's good, but that's not really the heart of loving God. Uh, It's easy to love God maybe in those kind of situations, but how do you love God? Well, like any relationship where you love someone, it began at a point in time. You met them. And love for God begins at a point in time where you meet the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. At that point, you recognize, I have sinned, and I cannot work my way into heaven by my good deeds. God is absolutely holy, and there's no way I can bridge that chasm. I'm in trouble. And so you recognize there's a big problem, but then you hear the good news. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to bridge that chasm through his death on the cross. He paid the debt that we owe, and he offers salvation to us as a free gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 puts it this way. The wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God, but... Aren't you thankful for all the buts in Scripture? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so at the point you put your trust in Christ, you enter into a relationship with the living God. Jesus takes the barrier away. He brings you into the presence of God and brings himself through the Holy Spirit into your life. Now, like all relationships, if it's going to grow, you got to hang out together, don't you? I mean, if I had married my wife and said, see you later, and five years later checked in with her, we wouldn't be very close. You have to spend time together. And it's the same with the Lord. As you begin to spend time in God's word, you get to know God. And you get to know how he wants you to live. And as you spend time in prayer, you open your heart up to the Lord and you share your needs with him and you begin to see him working in your life in a very definite way and you begin to grow in him. And then as you learn and obey his commandments, Jesus says in John 14 that he and the Father will come and make their home with you. They will dwell with you. It's talking again about a relationship. Um, If you've never read it before, here's a very practical way you can begin to apply what I'm saying. Read My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. I think it's online now, so you don't even have to buy it. Just Google that, and it'll pop up. And it won't take you 20 minutes to read it. It's a great little book where he talks about Jesus moving into his house. And he begins to become more than a guest. He becomes the Lord of the house. And he begins to clean house and move into every room and kind of rearrange things. And it's that kind of an analogy. But it's an unforgettable little book. It's worth reading and rereading. And then through God's word and through his indwelling Holy Spirit, he begins to transform your thinking, your mind, 
In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. We're all conformed to this world at the point we come to Christ. Paul says, don't stay there. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, that means test out an experience, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Christ-likeness at its core means a transformed mind. It means how you think differently in conformity now to God's word, not to this evil world. And since all sin begins in the mind, you have to fight the battle on that level and begin to defeat temptation mentally as it comes to you. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? So that I may not sin against you. And so you begin to put God's word in your heart and to value, to treasure that word. And it begins to transform your thinking. And you become progressively conformed to Jesus Christ. The root sin that you have to confront because it is a root of all sorts of sins, is pride. Pride. And that's in our minds. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so you have to judge pride. But you think about sin, selfishness, anger, uh, greed, jealousy, lust. Name the sin, and almost all of them stem Because I'm exalting myself either against others or, in every case, against God, saying, I know better than God what's right for me, and I'm going to do less and so. It's pride. It's not humbling ourselves before God. And it's running contrary to the two great commandments. I'm not loving God, and I'm not loving that person who's frustrating me for meeting my goal. Again, here's a very practical way to apply this. The first four get the prize. There's four copies out on the book table of from, uh, From Pride to Humility. It's a single chapter out of a book by Stuart Scott called The Exemplary Husband. Uh, And you don't have to read the whole book even. Just read that little booklet. And I just ordered some more, but they haven't gotten here yet. But there's four of them there. If you want to read a little longer book, C.J. Mahaney wrote a a great book, but it's not, I don't know, it's not 150 pages, called Humility. Read it. Great way to begin the new year and apply that to your heart. Um, Jesus described himself as being gentle and humble in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. So again, if our goal is Christ likeness, then our goal has to be humility in our heart, in our minds. Also, Christ like character is formed in us. We sang about it. We talked about it in the worship time through trials. That's the reality, isn't it? Sometimes God has to put us in tough situations, and as you look back, you realize, you know, I have always grown the most 
through those times of trial. As I had to trust God like I never had to trust him before. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 puts it this way. This is hard. Consider it all joy. Oh boy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Here's why. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. That word translated perfect is the same Greek word we have in our text. That I said means mature. So James is saying that we grow to maturity as we endure trials, uh, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 119 and verse 67 put it this way. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Another uh, helpful summary of Christian conduct, Christian character, is the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here's another way you can grow in the new year. If you've never memorized those nine qualities, then they aren't going to be part of your life. You've got to have them in your brain so that when you're out there and there's an opportunity to be patient, to be kind, to be gentle, whatever it is, you've got to have that in your brain so that you can go, yeah, here's a time to apply this. So take those qualities, write them on a 3 by 5 card, read them over every morning at breakfast until they begin to stick in your mind. Um, if you notice and meditate on those qualities, every one of them has a relational dimension to, to them. They, they aren't totally relational, but everyone relates to how you relate to other people. And if you violate them, you will damage your relationships. And I think every one of us would sit here and say, I want loving, close relationships. Boy, that's the stuff of life, isn't it? Well, there you have it. The fruit of the Spirit. If you dial back a few verses to the deeds of the flesh, almost every one of those is destructive to relationships. So don't walk in the flesh and fulfill its deeds. Walk in the Spirit. Uh, many other commands in the New Testament, uh, lists of character qualities. I just picked one for an example. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25 down through verse 32. Actually, it <clears throat> runs over into chapter 5, but I had to limit it. But it tells us to put aside lying and speak truth with one another. It tells us not to sin with our anger. It tells us to stop stealing and start working with our own hands so we can be generous and give. Uh, it tells us to use our tongues to build up others, not to tear them down. Uh, it goes on to say to clean out all bitterness and wrath, anger, yelling, slander, along with all malice. And then it sums it up in this way. Here's another verse to memorize. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has 
forgiven you. So you begin to put God's word then into your heart or into your mind and you begin to obey it. God begins to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ and you will grow to maturity in him. Now, let me just say, in case you're wondering, perfect doesn't happen in this life. Okay, there are people that teach that, you know, that you can be sinlessly perfect in this life. If I predict if you hung out with them very long, you would say, that isn't true. It just isn't true. So perfect isn't going to happen. We should aim at it, but we will always fall short. But there should be progress. That's the point. We should be growing this year to be more mature in Christ than we were. And so to help others grow, don't say, well, I'm not perfect. I can't help anyone. No, if you're in progress, you can help others grow as well. Now, assuming that you're doing that, how do you do it? Well, Paul goes on and he says to present every person mature in Christ. To sum it up, we proclaim him. Now, some of you are thinking, that word proclaim sounds kind of like a preacher word, Steve, and I'm not a preacher. Uh, But let me point out, first of all, proclaiming Christ is not just for pastors or full-time Christian workers. It's for all of God's people. Uh, Certainly, yes, there's a place for people who do what I do, and that is to study the Word of God, to teach the Word of God publicly in some way. But it's also true If you know Christ, you're a believer priest, and you have a ministry entrusted to you. And Christ should be at the center of all ministry, because Christ is what every person needs. And so, by your life, and by your words, in every situation, you proclaim him. That word proclaim was used in Paul's day for a messenger or a herald. This was the day, of course, before the internet, before radio, TV, even before telegrams. And so the king is in Rome or somewhere, and he wants to get a message out to all of his vast empire. What did he do? He sent out messengers. Now, these guys were not free to make up their own message. And if the message was a hard one, they had a hard job. They might get stoned or or attacked. But they had to go into every village and say, thus says the king. And they proclaimed the word of the king to the people. Well, that's a picture of our job. Uh, We don't make up our own message. We tell people lovingly, thus says the king. Here's what the word of God says. Now, There's a note of authority in that, and while I agree we should be sensitive to people and we should listen to their needs and we should interact with their thinking where they're at, there's another sense in which we never should say, well, you ought to really consider Jesus as one of your options. Jesus is not one of the options. He's the option. He's the Lord. He's the King. And we either submit to Jesus to our eternal blessing or we resist him and rebel against him to our eternal hurt. And so there's a message of authority that every one of us has to proclaim that 
Jesus is the only way. There aren't many ways. He's the only truth. There aren't many truths. And he's the only one who can give eternal life. So every person needs to trust in Jesus. And so what I'm saying is Christ is at the center of evangelism. As you have contact with an unbeliever, Christ is at the center of discipleship as you help a young believer grow to maturity. Let me give you one example that I read. Uh, Kent Hughes, a retired pastor, he tells a story about a blind 70-year-old uneducated African woman who got saved. So picture that. She's in Africa. She's blind. She doesn't have an education And she comes to Christ. What in the world can she do for the Lord? Well, she thought about it. And she went to the missionary who had led her to Christ. And she gave him a copy of her printed Bible and said, Would you please underline in red John 3.16? He thought, that's kind of odd. She can't read it. (laughs) So he thought, okay. So he underlined John 3.16. And he watched to see what she would do. She took her Bible over where there was a boys' school. And every afternoon when the boys' school would get out, she would sit outside the gate. And when the boys would come out, she would call to them and they would come over and she would say, "Uh, do you read French? And they would beam and say, yes, I can read French. And she would say, would you read this verse that's underlined in red to me? And they would read John 3.16. And then she would say to them, do you understand what it means? And they probably would say no. And uh, then she would proclaim Christ to those boys. And over the years, 24 young men went into pastoral ministry because of this dear old African woman, blind, uneducated, but she could explain John 3.16 to a bunch of boys. So I don't know what God's given you to do, but he's given you something to do in this new year for him to advance his kingdom. He's given you gifts He's given you opportunities that I don't have and I'll never have because we're all in different worlds and different contacts. And so the idea is you translate those into proclaiming Christ where you're at to unbelievers, to believers, to bring them to Christ, to help them to grow in Christ. That's the idea. A second thought here is that proclaiming Christ means we don't proclaim human wisdom. Our message is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. And that means we don't veer from that message. We don't have to supplement that message with worldly wisdom. And I say that because Satan is always trying to dilute the word of God with the world. He doesn't walk up and say, ah, the Bible's a bunch of baloney. Don't believe it. You know, we'd go, no. Rather, he says, well, the Bible's good as far as it goes, but it's not quite complete. Let me fill you in. It's what these Colossian heretics were doing. And so the the message of the cross The message that is offensive to sinners gets diluted. Water it down a bit. Make it more palatable. Sam Storms wrote this. If one were to look closely at many churches today, 
and assess the shape and form of, of ministry, verse 28 would likely need to be rewritten as follows. <clears throat> Him, we mention only in passing lest we offend seekers or sound excessively religious, rather than warning and teaching, we seek to please and entertain everyone so that they might feel good about themselves and be reassured that all is well in the world. That's the way the word gets watered down these days. Back in the 1950s, uh, Norman Vincent Peale came on the scene, and he devised the power of positive thinking. And he never mentioned sin and judgment, and so he never proclaimed Christ. I remember I was driving across the railroad track in Dallas one day, 45 years ago probably, and I had my radio on, and I heard the radio speakers say, you don't need to fear death. It's like going to sleep, and you'll wake up in a better place. And he never mentioned Christ. He never mentioned sin or judgment. And I thought, who is this? You've been listening to the Reverend Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. And I thought, the man is a heretic. He is denying the gospel and he's sugarcoating sin and telling people who are on their way to hell, you're going to be fine. That's the worst you can do. And then after... Peel comes along Robert Schuller, man with always a smile on his face. And he was influenced by Peel, and he developed possibility thinking and self-esteem, the new Reformation. And again, the man was a heretic because he would not talk about sin and judgment and Christ as the answer that God sent for our sin. And then, I'm stepping on a lot of toes here, but you got to do it sometimes. Worldly psychology has flooded into the church. And the psychologists come along again, and they take some of the Bible and take it out of context and blend it in with psychology's best insights and uh, tell you all sorts of things. Like they will say, well, if you want to love God then and you want to love others, first of all, You've got to love yourself. And so they bring in this false doctrine of needing to work on your self-love, self-esteem, and all of that. And they don't proclaim Christ and him crucified. And they don't proclaim self-denial and all of that. I have a couple of articles on the church website on that if you want to read more. And I would be perfectly happy to sit down and talk with any of you if you want to come and see me. Uh, And I could share with you why Christ and worldly psychology and other worldly wisdom do not mix. We must proclaim Christ. Proclaiming Christ, then, is something all God's people must do. It means not proclaiming worldly wisdom, but positively, it means that we do proclaim God's wisdom centered on the person and work of Christ. Paul draws this contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where in verses 21 to 24, he writes this, For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. He's talking there about the cross to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's what it means to proclaim Christ. To Jews, a stumbling block. Paul knew it was offensive to the Jews. Did he say, well, let's get a little more Jewish-friendly message here, can we? You know, let's kind of tweak it and make it not so offensive. No. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. Well, let's dress it up in intellectual garb for the Gentiles. No. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Now the sole source of God's wisdom is in his word and his word reveals one thing, Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament points forward to Christ. All of the New Testament centers on Christ. Peter says that in Christ... We have all that we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. It says in 2 Timothy 3 that God's word is adequate to equip us for every good work. Pretty comprehensive. When we walk in dependence on his spirit, as I said earlier, the fruit of God's spirit is developed in us. And if you go through the fruit of the spirit... And think about it, you'll recognize that those describe an emotionally, psychologically whole person. Those are qualities every person who has it together, if you want to put it that way, would have in their life. And so, to the extent that we have those qualities, we're focused on Christ. And as we go through trials and we learn to depend on Christ as our all in all, then we are equipping ourselves and others as we share with them how Christ met us in our need and we trusted him, how they can have Christ in their lives. So that's how we proclaim Christ to others. Now, one final thing here, proclaiming Christ then requires both admonishing and teaching every person. Paul says every person or every man three times. He's countering the false teachers because they had this doctrine of elitism. We've got the secret. If you join our elite group, we'll share the secret with you. But it wasn't for every person. Paul here is showing every person, every type of person matters to Christ. And so our message is comprehensive. It's for every person Uh, who will listen. We want to tell them the riches of Christ. And uh, certainly we need to tailor it. Babies need milk. And uh, the more mature can handle solid food. The word admonishing has the nuance of warning or correcting someone who is in sin or in error. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, there's a helpful verse. Paul says, we urge you, brethren, notice, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The word help literally means hang on to them, hold on to them so they don't go down. 
and be patient with everyone. Now, that word unruly is a a military term for being out of step. And if you've ever been in boot camp, there's always a wise guy. He's out of step, and he gets the whole company out of step. And then the commander, all right, 50 push-ups, you know, and you're down there doing push-ups and all that because that one jerk was out of step and got us all out of step. Uh, Those are the guys that need admonishing. Hey, get in step, buddy. You know, you're leading an undisciplined life. You need to be disciplined. But not everybody needs admonishing. Paul says there there are people who are faint-hearted, and they need encouragement. You don't admonish them. You come along, put your arm around them, and say, come on, you can do it. And then there's the weak, and you got to hang on to them because they're going to fall. So you got to have some discernment, in other words. And Paul in Romans 15 says, I'm convinced you're all able to admonish one another. So it's not just my job or the elder's job to admonish. It's hard. But sometimes you know a situation with somebody and you see them, they're kind of unruly. They're undisciplined. They need admonishment. Guess what? You're it. You're it. You got to go to them in love and admonish them. The word teaching is the positive side, and granted, some are only only some are gifted to teach publicly. But again, all of us have situations where we're called on to teach. If you have kids, you're teaching them. You're it. You have to teach them, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It says in Titus that older women are to teach younger women. Scripture is clear that more mature believers teach younger believers. And Paul brings both of these words, admonishing and teaching, together in Colossians 3, 16, where he says this, Let the word of Christ <clears throat> richly dwell within you. So it's the word of Christ that's what we impart. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And we can even do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So again, to admonish and teach, you've got to be growing in your own relationship with Christ. You've got to be in the Word so you can, when you get together with a younger believer, you can say, man, let me share with you what God taught me this week out of His Word, where it's fresh and you're growing in biblical truth. So our goal, to present every person mature in Christ. To do that, we got to be growing in him, but also to do that, we have to proclaim him. We have to proclaim him, helping every person see the all-sufficiency of Jesus for salvation and for sanctification. And then there's one other thing. Paul says in verse 29 that to present every person mature in Christ, we need to work hard as we rely on his power working in us. Notice verse 29. For this purpose, that is to present every person in Christ, complete in Christ, for this person also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. There is a beautiful paradox and balance in that verse, isn't there? Paul strives hard. He works hard. But he doesn't do it in his own power. He does it in Christ's 
power that works mightily in him. I have seen people go to both extremes. I've seen a lot of people who kick back, and their motto in life would be, hey, let go and let God. You know, don't get all worked up over things. Just kick back, let go, and let God. Uh, Don't get so worried about reaching others for Christ. If they're elect, they'll get saved. Don't don't worry about sharing the gospel. And, you know, God's going to help them to grow. So you don't need to commit to teach Sunday school or work with our youth or call on church visitors or get involved in that small group. Don't. Just relax and let go. That's their motto. Uh, they're kind of laid back, or if I were more blunt, I'd say, you know what? They're just plain lazy. They're not working hard in the gospel. On the other hand, you got people that are burning out. Burning out. They're just laboring and striving, but they're not doing it according to God's mighty power that works in and through them. Sometimes in Christian circles, it's almost a badge of honor to say, yeah, I suffered burnout. You know, I, I worked hard for the Lord and I burned out. My humble opinion is there's a problem there. How can you burn out if you're laboring according to God's mighty power working in you? And I think a lot of those people that burn out, they have a maybe unidentified desire to please God. You know, maybe they grew up in a home, I'm psychologizing here, I guess, but maybe they grew up in a home where they they never pleased their parents, and now they got to please God. So they're on a works basis with God, not a grace basis. When you understand the grace of God, you don't have to work hard to please Him, although it does please Him. You work hard because you want to please Him, because He loves you. But I think if you burn out, you're somehow not laboring in His power. Now, the word labor and striving, uh, they're both describing hard work. The word striving was an athletic term used of wrestlers. And those guys would struggle with all their might, every fiber in their body to pin their opponent in the match. And that's the picture. And I think Paul is saying there's no excuse for being lazy in the Lord's work. Uh, You see the same balance again in Philippians 4.13 where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul did it. He was the one laboring. He was the one striving. But he did it through Christ's strength in him. Now, let me balance that by saying this. Working hard for the Lord doesn't mean it's wrong to take time off. Even God rested on the seventh day. Uh, after creation, not because he needed to, but to give an example for us. And I am not a Sabbatarian. I do not believe we're under the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. But I do believe this. There is a wise principle there that you will neglect to your own peril. If you're going seven days a week, all day long, you're going to burn out. God designed us to need some rest, including sleep at night, and at least a day off every week to just recover. So work hard when you work, and then 
rest. Take time off and play when you play. Back in the early 19th century, Charles Simeon, you've heard me mention him a number of times, he uh, met Christ as a student at Cambridge, ended up being a pastor at Holy Trinity Cambridge for 55 years. And this was in the day before, or right about the time William Carey came on the scene. But Simeon was an early visionary for missions. And he would send the young men he discipled out into the mission field. And one of the young men he sent out was Henry Martin. Some of you may have read his biography. It's in print today. Henry Martin went to India and then to Persia where he succumbed, I believe it was tuberculosis, when he was 31. Now, this was in the days before photography, but somebody painted a portrait of Henry Martin in his final days, and that portrait got back to Charles Simeon, and he looked at it, and he wept. He looked at Martin's picture, and he thought, he's wasted. You know, he was gaunt. He he just wasn't the young man that Martin sent, or that Simeon had sent out. And Simeon took that portrait and he hung it right over the mantle in his study and he said he would look at it and it said to him, be in earnest, don't trifle. And Martin, I mean Simeon said, I will not trifle. I can't help but wonder that some of you might be trifling when it comes to your walk with God or serving God. Foundation has to be you've come to know Christ and you want to grow in Christ. Don't trifle with that. Be serious about growing in Christ in this new year. I've given you a few practical things you can do. And some of you are trifling about working for the Lord. No, I don't want to be committed. You know, I like my weekends free. Let somebody else do that. Don't trifle in the work of the Lord. Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your toil, he uses a word for hard work, your toil in the Lord is never in vain. So if you want to reap maturity, you got to be sowing to maturity. If you want to reap well done, you got to be sowing so that you'll hear those words. Let's bow together. Dear Father, I pray that you would make this new year one of unprecedented fruitfulness through Flagstaff Christian Fellowship that we would be serious about growing in you and that we would be serious about serving you wherever you've placed us to proclaim Christ by our life, by our words, whether it be leading a lost person to faith in Jesus or helping a younger believer grow in their walk with him. Give us that focus, that purpose. And should you return this year, Lord, or should we die, that one day soon we will hear, well done, good and faithful slave. 
I ask in Jesus' name, amen.